welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Okay, friends, if you don't have a Bible, there's some in the back here. We're going to be in John chapter 3. Uh, we're in a series, like I was saying earlier, called Wells and Fences. It's week three of that series. And uh, the, the, the first teaching that we did on this was really kind of critical and set the stage and the direction for the whole thing. So just briefly, uh, if you weren't here, I want to catch you up on, this is a metaphor we've been using, this idea of bounded set and centered set thinking. So two very different ways of thinking and two very different ways of kind of being in community together, right? Uh, for many who grew up in sort of evangelical and religious settings, uh, this side where there are f- this, this idea of fences might seem very, uh, you may have heard this before, you may have experienced this before, where the fences become the doctrines or the beliefs that a particular community holds. And so the question that's important becomes, do you believe what we believe? And do you believe what we believe to the degree that there's a little small door that when you check the boxes and say yes to all of those things, you may enter. And until then, you kind of observe from the outside. Uh, it keeps people in, it keeps people out that disagree or who are different than. This side is a very different way of understanding community, and in particular, a faith community, right? There are certain things that we will say we believe that we hold, to be, we hold very near and dear. We're That's the whole point of this series is we're exploring six of those that are at the center of the covenant. But the idea here is that this is a well and in the center of it is the life, death, teachings, resurrection of Jesus the Christ. And that's the thing that gives life, not fences, not boundaries, not particular beliefs about this or that, but the person and an experience with the person and the resurrected person of Jesus Christ. Um, through the Spirit. So the, the idea is this is the well at the center, that which we keep coming to. Think John chapter, uh, the women at the well, I can't remember what chapter. Um, but she comes and drinks of this living water that Jesus asks. Now, um, has anybody ever seen a student who grew up in this kind of a setting, who goes off to college and has total freedom and uh, their life becomes a total train wreck. Anybody ever seen that one before, right? Where you're in this sort of really, really tight-knit religious, you know, like you know exactly, and then they go and and it's total freedom and it's sort of like they don't know what to do with themselves. And as we've been thinking about this metaphor of wells and fences, actually this past week we were talking and thinking, I want to start here before we jump into new birth. Because for me, the centered set idea, this is what Paul's talking about in Romans 8 when he talks about freedom in Christ. For you are set free, the Spirit of God sets you free, that there's no longer, no, no condemnation for those who are in Christ, but the Spirit has set us free. And this is, this is what is offered, this is the possibility of living in Jesus, This sense of freedom. But freedom can be a very dangerous thing if given all at once to the wrong situation or the wrong person. And so I want to just highlight that many of us, or some of us, maybe very early on in our journeys with Jesus are are walking this thing out of faithfulness to Christ. And total freedom may not actually be the most responsible pastoral move. And what's important about this is that each one of us has been set free from these things. Paul talks about this in Romans where, you know, there's this debate over whether or not you should eat meat sacrificed to idols. And so there was this whole deal where some were saying, you can't eat meat sacrificed to idols. That's against the law. That's against Torah. But the question is, well, like, it doesn't really matter anymore because there's this new covenant. And Paul says, listen, basically, if you can eat meat sacrificed to idols and it doesn't bother you, then go, do it. But if you can't, then don't. And if you're with someone who can't, then don't. The point being, our own personal individual freedoms never supersede or take precedence over our relationship and community with others. 
So if someone, we're free to, to enjoy good, good uh, food or drink, good wine, beer, you're free to do that. But if you're with somebody or in community with somebody for whom that's been a problem and has struggled with that, you, you defer. You set aside your personal freedoms, your own freedom in Christ, for the sake of the other because you're bound in relationship and community and that's what Jesus' kind of love looks like. So this goes against everything that's American, right? It's about our own individual freedoms, our own rights. I mean, uh, we have days that celebrate this, and it's very counterintuitive, but that is not the gospel. That is not what it means to be in community. And so as we walk this out, it's not no fences, all freedom. That, would be, that wouldn't be very responsible. There may be times when as we walk together as a community, someone may need more structure than you do, and you defer to them until they walk and learn and grow and mature. That's what this process looks like. So I wanted you to start there because I think it's really important that we remember that, that our relationships and our, our communal connection to one another is absolutely critical and so very, very important to what it means to follow Jesus. Our own personal freedoms in Christ never trump relationship. Okay, you tracking? You with me? Okay, thank you. The rest of you, how's it going? Wake up. Okay. So uh, uh, we want to turn our attention to this, this uh, second affirmation of the covenant, uh, which is the necessity of new birth. Uh, we're, we're a church plant who's uh, moving out of uh, toddlerhood into becoming a covenant denomination or a covenant church. And this is the second of six affirmations that are at the center of the covenant. Before we get to John 3, I want to say right off the bat that this, this affirmation is directly connected to our history and our connection to, or our lineage, in Protestant Reformation evangelical theology and think the best version of each of those words, right? I'm sure some of us have baggage with some of those, but the best versions of we come from a Protestant tradition. We come from a Reformation tradition uh, and we come from a very evangelical tradition. More specifically connected to the covenant is this tradition of pietism. So uh, uh, in the 1800s, a whole bunch of Swedes and Scandinavians, can I get a little shout out to the Vikings? Okay. To the Scandinavians, so a bunch of the uh, a bunch of uh, Scandinavians moved to America, and they 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 are moving away from this uh, Swedish Lutheran church, this state church, which had become synonymous with uh, rote religion, institutional religion, to the degree that the census, the way that they knew someone was born, was the Swedish uh, church rolls of baptism. That's how you registered your child that they were alive in the world in this time. So there's this pendulum that swings the other way in this um, movement called pietism and it really centers on and it emphasizes this this individual experience that we have with God over and against this kind of institutional rote religion, right? So this idea of new birth is squarely rooted in this tradition that we come from. And um, I want to look at John chapter 3. There's a story of a guy named Nicodemus. So if you have your Bibles, uh, turn there. And uh, Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He is a teacher. He's one of the ruling members of a group of people in first century uh, Jerusalem where Jesus is, okay? So chapter three picks it up and says this. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs that you are doing if God were not with him. There's not really a question there, but Jesus jumps in and says, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Like, 
thanks for hanging. Thanks for coming out. I've got something I want to say. Here it is. Uh, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? You can see the smoke like coming out of Nicodemus's ears, right? Like, ah, okay. Have you, have you ever tried that? I mean, like, that's weird, right? Uh, Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb and be born. And Jesus answers, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to the spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. This is actually a reference to Isaiah 66, if you want to go back and look at that. Uh, The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus says. A few notes about Nicodemus before we jump in on new birth. Nicodemus, he's a Pharisee. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is a group of people who are among the religious kind of ruling class. So Rome is in power. The Romans have come in. There's been a long line of uh, oppressors. Think back to Babylon and Assyria, and now the Romans are, are there. And so the Jews are back from exile, right? They're living in the land, but they're still in exile, so to speak, because Rome is in power. The Romans allowed, us, uh, allowed a number of people, when they, when they conquered them, they would allow them to con- continue to sort of worship and do religion as they had, and they would give uh, basically like a license to do that to a certain degree. The Sanhedrin was one of those groups of people. They had the sort of... Uh, blessing, if you will, of Rome to do the religious things and rule what was happening in Jerusalem at the time, so long as they paid their taxes and they bowed the knee to Caesar. So you can see the sort of problems that could arise when somebody comes along and says, there's no kingdom under heaven and earth except in me. You can see the problems when somebody comes and starts pushing the envelope on those kinds of things about you bow a knee to Caesar, well, Jesus is Lord. So this is, the, this is the context in which, and the Sanhedrin actually becomes the group of people who are responsible for Jesus' kangaroo trial and his conviction and his, resu- or his, uh, his crucifixion. Certainly not his resurrection. Come on now. Come on now, Brother Micah. So this is the Sanhedrin. This is the group of people that we're talking about, of which Nicodemus is like right smack dab in the middle of. Okay? Now, he comes to Jesus at night which is very, very interesting. John, throughout the whole Gospel of John, is giving us these cues of darkness and light. All through the story, you can look through John's Gospel. He talks about, you are children of the light. You have been called out of darkness into light. And the light is this metaphor for the the work of God, the work of the Spirit, um, uh, being regenerated, reborn, this kind of thing. And darkness is everything that's anti-that, right? So John, he's using this metaphor, and it's absolutely at play with Nicodemus. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus, not in the middle of the day, but in the night. Now, we find later, we'll tease this out a little bit, that Nicodemus is on this journey. And John, John gives us these little windows, these little snippets, all the way through his gospel of Nicodemus and his process, his journey. And it's quite fascinating. But the other thing that's interesting about Nicodemus is, Nicodemus is a Jew. The question that's important to the Jewish people is, who's your mama? Why, you say? Because Jewishness was passed on through the mother. And so if your mother was connected to Abraham, you were Jewish. And if you were Jewish, no more questions, right, about who's in and who's out. When we're talking about the people of God, the one absolutely critical, important in question, which decides all others is, are you connected to Abraham? 
If you were a boy, you would have been circumcised on the eighth day. If your mother was Jewish, then you were connected. You were in the whole deal. That's why this text is so crazy because Jesus says no one, including you, Nicodemus, can see or enter the kingdom of God unless you've been born again. What Jesus does is the same thing that John does later on when he, when he asks them to come out to the, uh, to the wilderness to be baptized. He's basically saying, you're not who you think you are. Nicodemus, you're born of Abraham. You have all the credentials. You have, your religious connection is not enough. In fact, even the covenant which Yahweh made with your ancestors in Israel isn't enough. You have to be born of the Spirit, which is why Nicodemus is like, what are you talking about? Jesus makes it very, very clear that religious affiliation and even this connection to Israel and Yahweh and does not ensure entrance to and participation in the kingdom of God that Jesus is talking about. Rather, being born of the Spirit is. So this morning, a few, a few uh, observations about new birth. Number one, not rocket science here, but super duper important. That's highly technical theological terms, super duper. Necessity for new birth is necessary. It is absolutely necessary. Verse five says this. Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and of spirit. And and, and friends, when Jesus says the kingdom of God, what he's not saying is no one can enter heaven after you die unless you've been born of water and spirit. He's not talking about some sort of far off distant land that we go to when we die. Jesus is actually talking about a reality that he himself embodies and brings to bear. The kingdom of God is not so much a place that we go to when we die, but a way to be human, which Jesus is the pinnacle of. Jesus is the ultimate example of. People, you know, uh, shoot down this whole moral exemplar idea of the atonement, that Jesus is just a moral example. Well, he's not just a moral example, but he is a moral example. Jesus is the human of all humans. He's the second Adam that Paul, Paul calls him. He's the firstborn of new creation. He is the quintessential human experience. So what Jesus is saying, you can't enter the kingdom of God if you have not been born of the Spirit. What he's saying is you don't have access to this kind of humanity unless you've been born of the Spirit. To be born of water is a very Jewish way of saying you're alive. You're human, right? Think childbirth, think water, think, okay, I don't have to go any further down that track. Um, to be born of water just means you've been born, which is why Nicodemus is so confused. Like, how can you enter your mother again? How can you, that's the whole, weird, right? Obviously, Jesus is speaking about something else, and he's speaking about something that he alone brings about as a possibility. Paul confirms this later in Ephesians 2. He says, for it is by grace that you have been saved. It's not a work of yourselves so that you can boast, but it's a gift of God. He he says it again in different words in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, therefore, anyone in Christ new creation, right? Paul, remember, second Adam, Jesus is the firstborn. He's the first fruit of new creation. Paul says, if you're in Christ, if you've been born of the spirit, new creation is also in you. It's also coming out of you. It's your reality. It's your experience. It can be. Therefore, the old has gone. The new is here. All of this is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ. John makes it very clear in this gospel that being born of water or flesh equals being born of Adam. So if you know Paul's language later on in the epistles, Paul talks about being born of Adam, that we all experience death because we've been born of Adam. C.S. Lewis makes this pretty clear in the Chronicles of Narnia. He says, you son of Adam or daughter of Eve, right? So there's this distinction between being born of water or flesh and this 
distinction and Adam and being born of the Spirit or of Christ. Now, quickly, I want to just address this idea of original sin because what Paul says in Romans 5 about being born of Adam and therefore we inherit death often gets confused and, and has been taken in a direction that I, don't, I, want to, I want to make sure that we get what's happening here. There is a, there is a belief that I don't necessarily hold to uh, about the doctrine of original sin. So the original sin is this belief that the church has had. And it plays into a very deep-rooted system uh, that we don't have time to unpack at all. If you're interested in this, I would love to sit down and talk to you. But I want to make this point, and that is this. Uh, this idea that sin and death literally enters the human through the father's seed. Okay, kids in the room, I won't tease that out, but you know what I'm saying. That sin... And death, so the, the, the curse of, of uh, death that is uh, given to Adam, and guilt. So the, 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 the payout on this one is, like, immediately, the moment a child comes into the world, they are condemned, right? Original sin, because it's been passed on from the father. And this idea gets teased out, and, and if you go back through, it goes through Calvin and through Augustine, back to Romans chapter 5, and it's predicated on a particular reading of Genesis chapter 3 and a way in which we understand Adam and Eve as literal, particular human beings, so on and so forth. Now, there is a, this may be a shock to you, but there is a very large, large portion of Orthodox Christianity that does not believe that Adam and Eve were literal people in a f actual garden. I may be blowing some of your minds right now, and I apologize for that, but there is a very large swath of Christians who have walked this out, who read Genesis 3 in a very different way, therefore read Gen Romans 5 in a very different way. I tend to read it more like this. In the biblical account, this is surely the original sin, thinking Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, eating the tree, eating the apple. And I think it's clear that it is meant to be paradigmatic of the human condition. Now get this. Given the choice, the passage seems to teach that each of us would choose the fruit that opens our eyes rather than trusting God who tells us we don't need our eyes to be opened. Adam and Eve don't need to be literal for sin to be real. Regardless of how you read Genesis 3 and what you do with original sin, Paul, Augustine, and Calvin, and so on, the point I want to make this morning that I think is really important for us to get is this. Our experience as humans has, an, has with it an inability to experience the kingdom of God on our own. This is what Jesus says to Nicodemus. No one can see or experience the kingdom of God without being born of the Spirit. So without this thing, being born of the Spirit, new birth, being born again, you and I have the inability, we have an incapacity to experience humanity as we were intended to experience it. What I'm trying to say is there is something in us that is broken. There is something in us that needs to be restored, that needs to be reconciled, that needs to be made new, that needs to be born again. Now, the great debate of humanity from the ages, right? All of the great thinkers, this is the, this is the question. How do you fix it? How does one become new? How does... How, how do you address this issue of something being broken in humanity? And you don't have to go far to realize this is true. Read the newspaper, watch the news, look online. I mean, there's something broken in us. And the great debate is, how do you fix it? Now, some traditions would say that it's in you. 
If you look deep enough, if you center enough, if you go far enough into self that there is the possibility, there are the seeds for new life, that we can fix this on our own. This was the great myth of the Enlightenment, that the human reason, the mind, human capacity, we could fix all the problems. That's some, some traditions offer that. Others will say strict adherence to these particular things will fix the problem. The unique news of the Christian message, the gospel, the good news is that in Christ, God has done something for you and on your behalf that allows us to experience new birth, that allows us to have access to this, that which restores us, that which makes us new. Now, friends, this morning, I recognize that that is a point of contention for many. Was Jesus real? Did he really do what people say he did? Was he really actually the Son of God? And so this morning, I offer to you with open hands the possibility that this is true. I may be wrong, but I believe that I'm right. I believe that this is true. And I offer it to you for your consideration. Because regardless, you still, we still have to answer the question and figure out the problem of how do we fix this. The unique offering of the Christian message in the gospel of Jesus is that in Christ, God has done something that allows us access to this new birth that is so necessary. Observation number two, repentance and faith are key. Repentance and faith. Uh, Now, some of you, this is where some of us actually start breaking out in hives um, because uh, maybe of some of our experiences that had to do with um, people that we saw on TV with suits that were way too expensive and hair that was not their own, where it was, repent, repent, the kingdom of God is near, Jesus is coming back, and if you don't repent today, you might go to hell. Repent, repent, and if you repent, you get to go be with Jesus. Repent, repent, and if you don't, do not pass go, do not collect $200. Repent, repent. I just think that is so unfortunate that for many of us who live in this culture, we associate these terrible terrible theological and aesthetic, uh, (laughs) I mean, just terrible, you know, ideas and ways of talking about God and Jesus. Because this word, repent, is so integral to the story of Jesus and who God is. And it doesn't mean all of the things that we bring to the table the actual words in the Greek and in the Hebrew when they're used in the Bible, the Greek word is metanoia, and it, and it comes from meta and noeo, which means changed after being with and think. So the idea is literally think differently afterwards. Repent. The kingdom of God is near. Think differently. Act differently. Repent. The Jewish word is teshuva, and it means return. It means like come home. It means stop going in that direction and come back. So the word, when Jesus says repent, uh, just eliminate, if you possibly can, all of the garbage that we have associated with this word and recognize that it is, it is th- this is the doorway through which we enter. This is the doorway through which we are offered new birth and new life. 
Repent, teshuva, metanoia, think differently, return, go a different direction. And so it's a recognition of whatever I'm doing, whatever I'm participating in, whatever I am, whatever direction I am going, in fact, it is not life-giving and not in line with what it means to be human and who we were created to be. That's repent. When you recognize that, that this well that I'm drawing from actually is dry and I keep looking for water from it to satisfy my thirst and I am still thirsty. Repent, go a different direction. That doesn't give life. That doesn't give life. This, this offering of God through Jesus is what gives life. This is the message to the woman at the well. You've been with five husbands and the man you're with now is not your husband. Repent, go a different direction, please. This is not what you were made for. Repent and trust Repent and faith. There's this idea that um, uh, this is a conscious choice that we make. There is, this is not an illusion. This is not a trick. This is not a maze. God is not a puppeteer who pulls all the strings and only the elect, the ones God has elected to save will be saved and all the others are reprobates. Terrible reading of Romans in my opinion. God is not a puppet master. You have a choice which means that your choice is actually yours and it matters. And it has consequences for good and for ill. So if we have a choice, then the idea, which often gets put around in our context and in our, in our culture, is universal salvation, which is either all roads lead to God or Jesus' death is effective for all, which is to say that in the end, all of God's good creation gets redeemed. Now, pause for just a moment, pastorally I would say that ought to be what we hope for. Why would we hope for anything less? That God would get back all of God's beautiful creation that God made and imprinted with his own image. Why would we hope for anything less? That's downright mean. And, it's, and I don't think it's the spirit of Jesus. We ought to hope that somehow what I'm about to read, God works it out in another way and nothing is lost. Nothing. But I read passages like Ephesians 4 that says, however, it is not the way of life that you learned. When you heard about Christ, you were taught in him and in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put it off, which is being corrupted, and be made new. Colossians 3, since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your mind on things above where Christ is seated. See, set your mind on things above, not on earthly. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Ephesians 2, all of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of God's great love, who is rich in mercy, has made us alive in Christ. There is, I would submit, a choice to be made. Your choice matters. This is not a game. It is not a trick. It is not a maze. God is not a puppet master, which means that you can opt in to what God has already accomplished in Jesus, or we can opt out. We can believe that what we have and what we know is best. This is the lie of Genesis 3 and the garden. Eat the apple, your eyes will be opened and you will know what is best for you. And God says, trust me, trust me, trust me. Would you please trust me? 
Repentance and faith in the best possible way you can use those words. Metanoia, teshuva, return. Lastly, I would say this. Fruit is the most important. There's this unfortunate reality among Christians that like the dramatic conversion stories are the one that get the play, right? You know, you go to a conference and who gets up there, but the person who is like, you know, literally in the gutter, at the curb, just totally strung out and God picked them up and they went from death to life, you know, or darkness to light. And it's like, yes, yeah. And listen, we should celebrate that stuff. We ought to. God does amazing things. But unfortunately, many of us, myself included, who don't really have a dramatic conversion experience kind of go, well, man, praise the Lord. Right? Am I the only one? Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. I mean, and so the point I want to make here is that the fruit of a life that's been changed is what is important. Not do you remember when it happened. And this is great. Like the woman at the well, she's the, dra- she's the, she's the conference speaker. I mean, let's be honest, right? She comes to this well to get some water and Jesus is like, listen up. Here, I got some living water. She just like takes it by the deal sucks it all down, goes and finds her friends, brings them back to the well. It's like, you got to get some of this stuff, man. It's awesome. I mean, she's the dramatic conversion experience. Nicodemus, on the other hand, he comes to Jesus in secret at night. He doesn't want anybody to know. Later on in chapter 7, he says, uh, among his friends, the Sanhedrin, he's like, you know, I, I don't think we actually do trials this way where they don't, and they say, what, are you from Galilee too? Are you with this guy? And he sort of slinks back into the, in the background. And then it's not until the end of the gospel we find out something has happened in Nicodemus to the point where he is at the cross with Joseph of Arimathea taking down the body of Jesus and securing its burial. Something has happened. And the action, the fruit of his life, proves that something has happened. The point I want to make here is that the fruit of our lives when we have an encounter and experience with the living God will change. It will look more and more like Jesus. What does the fruit look like, you ask? Looks like Calvary. Self-sacrificial, other-oriented kind of love. So your neighbor who you can't stand, self, listen, listen, pay attention, gang, self-sacrificial, other-oriented, Love. Not a scorecard. Not, well, they vote, you know who they voted for. Not, well, you know what church they go to. Well, you know they're not actually Christian. Well, you, no. Stop, stop, stop. Don't. Go any, don't go any farther. Self, sacrificial, other oriented love is the fruit of an experience with the living God. That's it. To the degree that we grow in our capacity to love others, to the degree that we grow in our capacity to ascribe insurpassable worth to even our enemies, to the degree that we're growing in that, we're growing in Christ. To the degree that we're not, I'll just stop there. Right? Because I'll do what I'm telling you not to do. In, in, the, in the book on covenant affirmations, it says this, and I love this. Such a high doctrine of conversion does not mean that all believers have dramatic conversion experiences. While no one remembers the moment of physical birth, one's present life is evidence of its occurrence. So a person may be truly converted even though he or she has no memory of that moment. 
The vi- get this, the vitality of life is the proof of birth, not its memory or recollection. If I asked you all to bring your birth certificates next week and some of you didn't have them, no one would say, well, you might not be alive. <laughs> right? I mean, your living, breathing presence, physical skin, flesh to flesh, like that's the proof that you're alive. Your heart is beating. To the degree that you are growing in your capacity to ascribe insurpassable worth and love others self-sacrificially is the degree to which we know that you have been changed by the love of God. And so I, I offer you an altar call. Awaken style. For some, you may have never trusted this Jesus where you truly stop and you, just give, and you give up trying to draw from whatever well over and over and over and over again. And today is the day you recognize teshuva, return, repent, and trust that what God has done in Jesus, it's enough. You don't have to do anything more. It's grace. It is grace, 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 even for me and for you. For those who have said yes to Jesus, or who may be somewhere along that continuum. C.S. Lewis has this great quote about people who, who think they follow Jesus, but who may not even know, and some who don't think they follow Jesus. And may, For those who are somewhere along that Nicodemus-like journey, can I offer you one more step closer to the well? And for, for many who have followed Jesus, who have decided you need to be, maybe today you need to be born again, again or again, or again. Where we, where we remain open to the possibility that God wants to birth new things in us and change old habits and ways of being and break the bonds and loose the chains of the things that, that hold you captive. God is doing something in me right now uh, that I won't share with any of you because it's mine and it's between me and the Holy Spirit, and I'm praying that I would remain open to being born again, again. And so I offer to you the possibility that today is a day where you say, okay, here I am. Hineni, right? This is this Hebrew word that we see over and over in the scriptures. It's translated, here am I. Samuel says it. Moses says it. Abraham says it. Hineni, here am I. And I offer this to you with open hands for you to consider. I would testify in court that it has changed my life. And I offer it to you. It's grace. Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awaken Community or on Twitter at Awaken Community. See you next time.